Thank you so much, Acting Director Fowler, for your testimony. Uh, I want to remind the members that Committee Rule 3D imposes a five-minute limit on questions. The chair will now recognize members for any questions they may wish to ask the witnesses. I will now turn to Representative McCullum uh, to begin with uh, the questions she may have for our witness. Thank you so much, Madam Chair, and thank you for holding this hearing. I'm assuming I've got the mute button all taken care of here. Um, thank you for holding the hearing, Madam Chair. Um, on this advanced appropriations. Uh, this is uh, a piece of legislation, as you pointed out, our dear colleague, Don Young, um, worked very hard. And he worked on uh, Indian uh, issues in a nonpartisan way, not just a bipartisan way, a nonpartisan way. And he, as you pointed out, was one of the strongest champions for Indian country. As a former chair uh, of, and current vice chair of the Interior Appropriations Subcommittee, which funds the Health and uh, Indian Health Service, I've heard from tribal leaders for years about the difficulty of operating essential government services under the uncertainty of continuing resolutions and shutdowns. And um, I want to um, thank you for, again, for having this hearing, Madam Chair. I had a listening uh, during the uh, the government uh, shutdown between uh, 19, uh, 2018 and 2019. And the stories that were shared were heartbreaking and at times horrifying to listen to what was going on in Indian country. So I thank you uh, and, and this committee for holding a hearing on this topic last Congress uh, about uh, in, in 2019 when, when that was held. So let me just... Um, just to say that the federal government has a responsibility, a sacred responsibility to fulfill the central trust and treaty responsibilities and healthcare services to Native Americans. So um, we, we pointed out that these shutdowns put a spotlight on uh, the clear need for advanced appropriations. Um, Ms. Fowler, you outlined many of the harms caused uh, in your testimony, the lasting impacts uh, that, that it has on, on staff not feeling appreciated, secure in their jobs. Is there anything else you would like to add about what happened during the shutdown in 2019 and how, if anything, you want to add to the uncertainty and how this impacts morale, recruitment, and detention and what it does to the trauma in uh, communities? And the last part I'd, I'd ask you is um, IHS has been able to learn from the VA. I was here when the VA finally went to advanced appropriations because our veterans used to get caught in the same dilemma that our tribal uh, elders and our tribal youth are caught in. Uh, so have you been able to take lessons learned from the VA so that you'll be able to hit the ground running when we are able to pass this advanced appropriations? Thank you uh, for for your uh, words and your, your statements. Um, I would like to just sit, note that recruitment and retention is already or is, is a challenge for the Indian Health Service at any point in time. But during any time of budget uncertainty, it worsens. It becomes a greater challenge for us. The inability to, uh, to uh, uh, do job offers to providers, to approve loaner payments, to approve uh, incentives, re recruitment incentives or retention incentives, uh, the inability to establish a start date for a new recruit or to 
ensure that we are going to be able to pay for their moving expenses um, all lead to the loss of potential um, great employees for the Indian Health Service. And so uh, that is a particular challenge. Uh, there's also the challenge of uh, not being able to pay our vendors. And so we've had vendors who stop doing business with the Indian Health Service because we're unable to pay them during a government shutdown. So these are definitely uh, huge and significant impacts that we see arising from budget uncertainty. Regarding the VA, we actually um, have sat down and talked with them about their budgeting process. We know that they use a, a fairly complex method for estimating and projecting their budget needs. Um, I think one of the things that we have learned from them is that an approach to executing or implementing advanced appropriations would likely be best accomplished through a two-phase process. And that process would consist of phase one or the, the year one budget request uh, for advanced appropriations focused on the, the current services level of funding, while the second phase would be the, the, the point in time at which the, the proposals uh, and the priorities for the administration would be outlined and, and identified. Thank you, Ms. Fowler. Thank you again, Madam Chair, for holding this hearing and for the ranking member uh, uh, being here and being, being part of this important discussion. Thank you. The chair will now recognize the ranking member for five minutes of questioning. Thank you, Madam Chair and Ms. Fowler. Thank you very much for your testimony. Uh, as you know, in 2017, the GAO placed the IHS on its high risk list and uh, earlier, Several months ago when uh, the GAO updated that list, the IHS remains there. We had a hearing in the subcommittee several weeks ago uh, in which we discussed the status of the various recommendations that the GAO had made uh, and how far along the IHS was in implementing them. Uh, you know, just to be transparent here, some of the criticism that we get when we suggest authorizing advance appropriations for IHS is that that would cut Congress too far out of the loop in holding IHS accountable for implementing the remaining recommendations and getting off the GAO's high risk list. Could you give us an update on the status of the implementation of those remaining recommendations? And uh, could you also talk a little bit about whether or not you feel that authorizing these advance appropriations would diminish co Congress's ability to oversee uh, the removal of IHS from that list? Sure, uh, it's a great, great question, and I appreciate the opportunity to say a few words about that. So, as far as the GAO's high risk list is is concerned, the Indian Health Service, as you noted, has was placed on the list in uh, 2017, or since 2017, and uh, there were a number of recommendations that were identified as. Uh, being unaddressed. Uh, I think that, well, I know that the overarching reason that IHS was placed on the list is because the GAO found that the health service was performing inadequate oversight over the health care that was being provided to American Indians and Alaska Natives. IHS has worked very hard 
to address the recommendations. And at this point in time, I can tell you that there are six recommendations that remain open. Two of those recommendations, the Indian Health Service has requested to be closed as implemented. We're just waiting for confirmation from GAL uh, on those recommendations. And we've also developed an action plan that we've, we've had one discussion with GAO about. They provided us feedback, but this action plan is actually designed to uh, to lead to removal from the uh, high-risk list by identifying 11 actions that we we intend to accomplish uh, by, by June of 2023. Um, and all of these actions have the effect of establishing uh, improvements in systems or processes that will be sustainable for, for the years to come so that we're, we're able to ensure that the improvements will be sustained. And um, Ms. Uh, Gallo, if, I, if I could uh, just ask you to provide that answer as a written response to the committee, uh, I'd like to leave some time for you to answer the second part of the question, which is uh, whether or not uh, granting this advance appropriations authority would diminish our ability to oversee IHS getting off that list. I'm interested in your thoughts on that. Um, and uh, thank you again. Really, um, as I mentioned um, just a minute ago, we we believe that the best approach might be a two-phased approach to uh, implementing advanced appropriations, which means that we would be submitting a budget request every year, as we currently do, and. Uh, we would be committed, we are committed to ensuring that we will be responsive to any continuing requests from the committees. Uh, uh, during during uh, the, the in-between years, but by submitting a budget request every year, we do believe that that maintains the, the process for uh, that oversight and ability to uh, uh, have us testify really on or, or provide briefings on the, our activities and our programs. Right, well, thank you. Uh, as, as you and I have discussed before, we don't view this as an adversarial relationship. We wanna empower you and make sure that you have the tools and the resources that you need to get off this list because in doing that, it would serve not only the IHS, but also uh, the constituents that rely on you. So thank you for the testimony. I yield back, Madam Chair. Thank you. Um, the chair would now like to recognize the gentleman from Illinois, Mr. Garcia. Thank you, uh, Madam Chair, Ranking Member, and of course the witnesses uh, for joining us today. Indigenous uh, communities have uh, historically been shortchanged when it uh, comes to receiving high quality health care to meet their needs. And the COVID-19 pandemic, which hit Native Americans especially hard, makes providing certainty for healthcare funding even more important. Not only are indigenous communities receiving less funding than what they need, it often doesn't arrive in time. Chronic appropriations delays, piecemeal funding bills, and government shutdowns have hampered the ability of Indian Health Service to de deliver the healthcare and services these communities rely on. Plain and simple, one's health shouldn't depend on Congress's ability or inability 
to pass legislation on time. Uh, a question for Ms. Fowler. In your testimony, you mentioned that urban Indian organizations are disproportionately affected by disruptions in federal appropriations. Why is this the case and how do these disruptions impact communities on the ground? Really uh, great question. Uh, urban Indian organizations are funded through a different mechanism than our tribal health programs. Uh, they're funded through contracts and grants and the contracts are uh, federal acquisitions regu regulation contracts. One reason that they're disproportionately impacted is that during a continuing resolution, we we're able to pay tribal programs who have a, whose contracts or compacts have start dates within the continuing resolution period, their full year funding through um, an exception apportionment process. We are unable to do this for the urban Indian organizations. And so they are, uh, they receive funding for partial amount um, that's consistent with the continuing resolution period, which, uh, so it's a piecemeal funding method for those programs. Uh, uh, go ahead. Th thank you. Um, you also mentioned uh, that a lapse in appropriations has led to concerns from potential recruits and existing staff, especially healthcare providers, about the stability of their employment. How has the lapse of funding impacted recruitment and the future health uh, workforce in Native communities? So the, the lapse of appropriations, uh, during a lapse in appropriations, we are unable to perform certain functions and, and of course, we don't have appropriated funding to spend. So spending is either severely curtailed or it's stopped altogether. For our providers and for our workforce, we are unable to, for new recruits, offer, make job offers. We're unable to approve Title 38 salaries for our doctors and dentists. We are unable to uh, approve any of the incentives that we have authorities for recruitment, relocation, and uh, uh, retention. Um, we are unable to uh, enter into any long-term commitments. We're, we're often unable to enter into some of the support contracts that make their jobs easier as well. And, and so uh, it really creates a lot of stress on our workforce. And for those who do not receive a paycheck, it creates an, a hardship for them. Oftentimes, we, our staff commute long distances. And so um, the inability to, uh, or the uncertainty about receiving a paycheck means they're, they're not sure if they're going to have enough money to pay for gas to pay for childcare, or just to pay for basic subsist subsistence like groceries or their utilities. Thank you so much uh, for painting a picture of all the things that hamper your ability to deliver 
uh, more quality healthcare and to run a more sustainable organization. I reserve the rest of my questions for the second panel. Again, thank you. Thank you. The chair would now like to recognize the gentleman from Montana, Representative Rosendale. Thank you, Madam Chair. Um, Acting Director Fowler, thank you so much for joining us today. I do appreciate that. I'm going to go down the same line of questioning that the rank or Obernalty was, was on, and that is what oversight or additional checks and balances have you put in place to assure proper and timely use of the funds to avoid the waste, fraud, and mass management, which has caused the IHS designation as a high-risk program. And what I'm trying to, to uh, determine is whether the, um, the action plan with the 11 actions that you were talking about, is that basically for monitoring funds after distribution so that you can track what's going on, or is that to uh, provide more stringent oversight and accountability at the actual release of those funds? So if, it's, if you could walk us through that and let us know if it's, if it's monitoring after or what, what checks and balances are in place to make sure that these funds are being used properly. Uh, great, great question. Uh, first of all, I just wanna point out that the, um, the GAO's designation of the Indian Health Service as a high-risk agency is really focused on the uh, oversight of healthcare. Uh, there, it's not it's not specifically identified that fraud, waste, and abuse, or mismanagement of funds is is at the heart of that. And indeed, we've not identified that as uh, as an issue. However. We do believe that part of adequate oversight over healthcare that's being provided does include additional insight into how funding is allocated and spent below the headquarters level. And so the action plan does include an action that would help us to uh, have more oversight over funding that is spent at our hospitals and health clinics. Uh, so it really does, it's something that's going to occur after the funds are allocated. Okay, so it's focused more on, on monitoring after the distribution of those funds. Is that fair to say? Yes, although I should add that part of that, it also includes an, an approvals uh, level so that uh, there's an additional um, oversight prior to the funds being spent. Okay, so it's my understanding that, um, well, I'll tell you what, are, are there specific accounts that you believe are the most important to have advanced appropriations in? In other words, what accounts do you place the highest priority on that need to be funded in advance of others. Have you broken that down? So we believe that because our uh, our system is very much integrated and interconnected, that it's important for our entire set of accounts to receive advance appropriations. Okay, so let me ask you this. Can you, um, it's my understanding that IHS has stated its systems in place to accommodate receiving 
the advance appropriations, okay, this money in advance. Can you further elaborate on that system? Sure. Well, um, we believe that we are well prepared to implement advance appropriations. There are two primary uh, functions that would be impacted. One is the uh, our ability to account for the funds in our accounting system. So that is the system where we would need to uh, uh, modify in order to uh, identify the funding uh, for a budget year in advance of the current budget year. And so we are well prepared to do that. Um, the other function that is impacted is budget formulation in terms of identifying estimates a year in advance of when we normally do it. And we are well prepared to uh, initiate that work. Uh, as I mentioned before, I think I mentioned it previously that our budget formulation process begins with tribal consultation. And so we were well prepared to begin this and implement those functions appropriately. Thank you. Madam Chair, I'll yield back. Thank you. Uh, the chair will now recognize the chair of the Natural Resources Committee, the gentleman from Arizona, Representative Gayek. Thank you very much, Madam Chair and Ranking Member. Um, uh, first, let me let me just uh, get some business out of the way for uh, and submit for the record, Madam Chair, uh, letters of support for uh, Mr. Young's legislation and uh, the, from the joint letter to Congress from the Indian Health Care uh, and then uh, the resolution that National Congress of American Indians passed uh, specific to the issue that we're dealing with here today, advanced appropriations the American Bar Association uh, resolution and support, and uh, and the uh, United South and Eastern Tribes Incorporated, their resolution in, in, in support of the legislation. Uh, Without objection, so ordered. Thank you. You know, every time there's a governmental shutdown, uh, disruption in the flow of uh, the resources uh, to, in, uh, the resources that the, the, our government and our federal agents that are responsible for, uh, we uh, the tribes receive the brunt end of that process, and uh, and and the government fails to uphold its uh, uh, treaty and trust obligations. That's happened more than once in my tenure here, and 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 the the most adverse consequence by far was an Indian country and and around. A lot of issues, but focused in on healthcare. And you know, I understand the White House supports advanced appropriations. That's an essential bridge, uh, and uh, it, it makes sense. Uh, like I was pointed out, the Veterans Administration went through that process, uh, having to uh, deal with the same issues that uh, Indian Country Health Services is doing. And uh, and I recall there. It was around the same issues, patient quality, retention, uh, employment issues, human resource issues, facility upgrade issues, all brought to us by veteran organizations representing their uh, their uh, their members and saying something's got to change. And, and what changed is advanced. But beyond that, for a decade, uh, the, in the investment in, in, in veterans' health uh, increased dramatically. 
And, uh, you know, that's part of, of the issue here. And I, I appreciate the question that the ranking member brought up about accountability, uh, Madam Chair. Maybe that's something to explore. You know, I, I, I'm the last one to want to tamper with Mr. Young's legislation. But if there is some specificity that is not onerous above and beyond uh, to Indian Health Service uh, that reaffirms the role I think the ranking member was trying to make a point of, reaffirms this committee's oversight role, uh, I think that language, if there could be agreement, would be a pretty good thing. And I think would uh, allay some concerns of where this committee will stand with advanced approaches. And I, uh, I agree that the Veterans Administration, like I said, took a decade to integrate that investment, go through the bumps of having to, to implement a new system. Um, but through that whole time, that committee was, was involved in that with many, much oversight and, uh, and, uh, uh, and accountability extended. It didn't end the extra, didn't end the resource flow, but it, I think, helped make sure that the system itself was getting better. And I think that that's what we want to do here is make it more efficient. And if there's a role, uh, Madam Chair, leave that to you folks' discretion on that. Um, I, uh, I really don't have any questions. Just wanted to, uh, other than uh, Director Fowler, so, so the administration, I, I assume or presume, both are dangerous. <laughs> the, the, uh, that they, they're okay with codifying this advanced process into law, the, the advanced uh, appropriations into law. Am I correct? Yes. Okay. Yes. And uh, yeah, and I, I, I was just mad to to the chair's comments. I think this would be a fitting thing. I know the chair and. Uh, the ranking member, myself and others, and we're still pursuing, uh, I think what would be not just a memorial for the man, uh, but also I think a, a plus for Indian countries to put together the legislations that are have been the work of this committee. You guys have done a lot of work. And those that are pending on the floor and those that are pending in the Senate and urge a package approval at some point before the sun sets on this session, and I, I'll look to your leadership on how you want to do that. Thank you. Now you're back. Thank you, uh, Chair Grijalva. And I do think that we have been having discussions um, uh, with our colleagues about how to properly honor um, our ranking member and former dean of the House and his commitment to issues uh, like and what we forget, are. don't forget, former boss, too. You're oh, he was a former boss. ran this place. <laughs> And we can't forget the amazing uh, salmon and uh, black cod we were able to, to enjoy in his presence. Um, so I do think that we do intend to continue, and I look forward to having um, the bipartisan support for recognizing, you know, the, his legacy and 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 and, and naming, um, uh, putting it on on the name of these bills, right? So, so we have some work ahead of us to be able to do that and honor that, and I am very grateful for the support um, that we've been hearing about putting that, and it's just, it's like nonpartisan, as, as Representative McCollum said, it's, it's, it is simply the right thing to do. Uh, after that many years of service, it is the way we honor. We honor not just by words, but it is deeds 
that make the difference. And I think that, that um, the deed of actually uh, having a package that honors uh, Representative Young with this being a key part of it. Uh, I will now recognize myself uh, for questions. Uh, and uh, direct, uh, Director Fowler, you've answered um, uh, questions about the impact that not having the advance funding has done in terms of employees, in terms of morale, in terms of the difficulty of subcontracting. Um, I wanted to kind of take this a little further and ask, how has it impacted in two areas? One would be the ability to plan, right? Uh, every other health business out there or health facility can think about what is our future? What do we need to be ready for? How do we address the fact that a pandemic occurred and we have different problems that we need to think about in terms of what our facilities look like. Uh, and so I wanted to have you talk a little bit about how this yearly and kind of jerk on, jerk off, you know, this, this there is nothing smooth about our budgeting process for you now, how that affects planning. And then if you could do also, I know that so many of our patients um, that go to the IHS Sometimes you don't have the specialty uh, that they need, and so we must, they, they must get their care elsewhere. There must be the contract services, the support services. Are you aware of patients, uh, IHS entitled patients who were unable to get the care they needed because of the problems with regards to not having that advance appropriations, not you know, you ran out of money and you just don't have the money until we pass another, uh, our budget, uh, so that they can get the care outside of the IHS system itself. If you could address those two aspects. And then I do have another uh, question and observation before my five minutes is up. Uh, <clears throat> yes, I, again, uh, the, the budget uncertainty uh, makes it very difficult for our programs. The budget formulation process actually works works well up until that very last step of receiving a full year appropriation for the agency. It's, it's really that last step that impacts our programs significantly because of their inability to make long-term commitments, their ability to plan beyond the whether it's a continuing resolution period, they can't they can't plan beyond that because the, that future is unknown. And so uh, that means that any decisions that need to be made about some of those longer term commitments, whether it's a, a contract, which because of certain regulations, you know, we, we have to be able to enter into the full year amount of contracts uh, when we enter and obligate it at the time that we enter into it. And so um, it creates difficulties in that regard. Um, it creates difficulties, as I mentioned before, with recruitment and retention uh, procurements as well. It, it can uh, significantly impact our ability to uh, obtain the supplies and services that we need to provide healthcare. Um, and so that final step, that lack of an appropriation and waiting for that process to complete is really creates um, some difficulties for us. Uh, and then the, the second part of your question, uh, uh, sorry, it just went out of my head. It was uh, 
I, I think you've provided just, a, I mean, it is like anything we can think of that a business and a health facility would need to do, you can't do because you don't know where, how much money you're going to get and the money runs out and we're in a continuing resolution. Uh, I just want to echo uh, Representative McCullum's comments about when we speak with tribal leaders, and I'd like to recognize that we have tribal leaders in the hearing with us today, and they all tell us over and over again about the need to have advanced appropriations. I was at the Gallup uh, Indian Medical Center, which is one of the busiest IHS facilities in the country, as well as one of the oldest. We will hear from President Nez a little later. But when I asked the tribal leaders, the staff, um, the uh, everybody who we were interacting with on that day and the other days that I've gone to our facilities, what can we do? Advance appropriations comes up over and over again because the negative impacts just cascade down. Um, so with that, I want to thank uh, our witnesses in our first panel. Oh, Ms. Radaragan has arrived? Okay, great. We will uh, give us a few seconds and a little bit of patience so we can have our Representative Radaragan uh, uh, be recognized for five minutes as she... Okay, well, we will have uh, our, our second panel and hopefully Representative... Uh, oh, there we go. Uh, we do know that the um, uh, acting director must leave at uh, 2 o'clock, so this is the exact perfect timing, and the chair will recognize Representative Radragan for five minutes or until 2 o'clock, which should be coincide. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I would like to yield my time to the ranking member. Thank you very much uh, to the member for yielding. Uh, before you go, Ms. Fowler, uh, I'm sure that you reviewed the testimony from the coming panel. Uh, one of the piece of testimony that I found was pretty compelling was the testimony of Chairman Erickson from the Colville tribes when he was talking about uh, the difficulties that they've had with IHS and uh, particularly as a direct service tribe, the difficulties that they've had with IHS's management of PRC and third-party billing. And I know it's a little awkward here because we've got your, you, you and, and they in different panels, so we're going to hear from Chairman Erickson uh, in just a minute here. But I wonder if you could, uh, if you could respond to that and, and talk a little bit about uh, whether or not this is a widespread issue with other direct service tribes in the IHS system uh, and, uh, and some of the, the tools maybe that we have to solve these problems? Um, yes, and actually I, I am aware of the issues that Colville, that the Colville uh, tribe has raised. They've raised them to me and we have undertaken some work to identify what is uh, occurring there. Uh, in that area and with that program. Um, <clears throat> I'll just say, as far as it being widespread, I'm, I'm not aware that uh, there are issues elsewhere. I will say that one, one uh, common factor for purchased and referred care programs is 
Registering Hard Care funding uh, has led us to, we're not able to fund all of the purchase and referred care needs that are out there. And so it resulted in IHS establishing regulations that uh, limit the eligibility for purchase and referred care services. And so the amount of funding resources really has a large part to do with some of the issues related to referrals not being approved for care because they don't meet the, the medical priorities that are established, as an example, mm -hmm. or because the patient doesn't reside in the eligibility area. And uh, so this is something that we're we're very much aware of, and uh, I, it, you know, that entire program is is where we purchase healthcare from uh, vendors outside of the Indian Health Service, and so it is uh, one that is very dependent on financial resources. Right. Um, if, if, if my colleague would 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 yield for a minute, this is uh, Congresswoman McCollum. Well, yes, I will yield. So, Ms. Fowler, I think what you're alluding to is the fact that quite often through appropriations, something that I've worked very hard in uh, and with uh, uh, Mr. Cole, Mr. Simpson, other appropriators, is um, not having up-to-date computer systems, not having access to broadband, not having um, the contractors available to help uh, some, uh, you know, to train in the trainers on how to work some of these programs and do some of the competitive uh, work that needs to be done. Um, um, Mr. Obanorti, I was just shocked at a hearing that that I had about four years ago, and one of our one of our tribal systems was still using DOS. So part of it is just doesn't fall on on the on the heroic work that the healthcare providers are trying to do. It falls on Congress not doing its job in um, fulfilling its obligation for systems. Uh, computer systems as well as uh, facilities, um, and that—that's part of the reason why you see the reports that you do from GAO. So we have our own work to do, and I thank the gentleman for yielding, and I return his time. Well, thank you. Uh, very worthwhile contribution. Uh, before you go, Ms. Fowler, if you and I were discussing a few minutes ago the uh, budget process and the budget process that would be followed under advance appropriations, uh, could you talk a little bit about? Uh, the invol current involvement of the tribes in the budget process. I know you've got budget advisory committees, but I know that uh, there's been talk about making it more transparent and accessible to the tribes. How do you see that uh, progressing in the future? Tribal consultation is fundamental to our budget process. Everything that we do is based on the set of budget priorities that the tribes uh, generate and agree on as part of our budget formulation process. Uh, I think that uh, being able to um, identify the, uh, through advanced appropriations, making funding more predictable would allow us to have more fulsome discussions around what the needs are going to be and in, in estimating the, and projecting budget needs one year out. And so I think it really would be helpful to us to uh, have those discussions and uh, certainly uh, uh, that, you know, there is still the deliberative process that 
means that we're um, you know, not able to be uh, transparent about what happens during that phase of the budget, but uh, we would use every opportunity to talk about the budget given um, those parameters that, that we already have in place for the budget process. Great, well, thank you. I know you have a schedule constraint. I thank you for uh, answering the question and sticking around. I yield back. Thank you, uh, ranking member, and thank you, uh, Director Fowler. And you know, we would note that those issues around Congress's obligation to fully fund, we did have that funding in the Build Back Better um, legislation. Uh, I think we need to always remember that that legislation tried to address the underfunding, the chronic underfunding, and what we needed to do to bring our facilities up to the modern day. So we will continue to look at those and through the regular appropriations process, hopefully increase and address the needs. I will now like to transition to our second panel of witnesses for today. Before introducing them, I'll remind non-administration witnesses that they are encouraged to participate in the Witness Diversity Survey created by the Congressional Office of Diversity and Inclusion. Witnesses may refer to their hearing invitation materials for further information. Under our committee rules, oral statements are limited to five minutes, but you may submit a longer statement for the record if you choose. When you begin, the on-screen timer will begin counting down and will turn orange when you have one minute remaining. I re recommend that members and witnesses joining remotely lock the timer on the screen. When you go over the allotted time, I will gently tap my gap and kindly ask you to please wrap up your statement. After your testimony is complete, re please remember to mute yourself to avoid inadvertent background noise. I will allow the entire panel to testify before we begin the question portion of the hearing. I would now like to recognize uh, the Honorable Jonathan Nez, who is president of the Navajo Nation and the Navajo Area Representative for the National Indian Health Board. I am honored to have you join our committee here today, President Nez. You're now recognized. <laughs> 